Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, and Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Calls, and I'm joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going? It's going okay. It's Kate. I moved to Washington. There's no, like, buildings don't have AC here. Huh. So the Weather Channel app on my phone has a special weather statement because the temperatures are going to get into the upper 80s, low 90s for the next two days. We need it because of that. Like, everyone's just like, we don't know what to do. Huh. Yeah, and I'm recording and I have a fan on right now because... It's just going to get really hot in my apartment as we record for the next maybe two, two and a half hours. <laughs> and um, it's just, it's, I'm just going to be a sweaty mess by the by an hour into this. And it's just like, it's rough. It's rough. We keep recording on really hot days. It's been great all week. And now it's just like, it's really hot. And I'm just like, ah. Low, yes. Low <laughs> 90s and or high 80s is, is so hot. Have you just, do you need to introduce like your city to fans? To the concept well, of, like, ceiling fans and stuff? We all, they're ceiling fans. There's just no AC. Okay. Yeah, there's no AC. Like, buildings don't have ACs unless they're, like, owned by large corporate chains and are standalone stores. Otherwise, buildings don't have AC in the Pacific Northwest, but, really. Again, you're talking to somebody who grew up without AC. Right. For, you know, 19 years of my life. So. Right. And I come from Georgia where, like, upper 80s, low 90s isn't that big of a deal. Yeah. But it's just like I moved away. I moved here to get away from that stuff. <laughs> Have you already acclimatized? Does it already feel hot, or can you still be like, "I'm from Georgia. This is nothing." If I go outside, I'll be fine. But because it's in here and I've got windows closed because we're recording, mm-hmm. it just gets starts getting really like stuffy and hot. But if mm-hmm. I go outside, I'll be fine. Yeah, well, so maybe go. I should just go outside and record. Do you want me to go do that? In fact, <laughs> let me pack up. Maybe there'll be a helicopter. Think, uh, yeah, helicopters. I think the listeners uh, appreciate. Uh, the, your sacrifice, mm-hmm. Noel, uh, in staying in, indoors. No, no, um, it's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, that that's funny. It's been it's been hot, but not nearly as bad as it was earlier in the summer for me. So like, I've just been digging the. I mean, like, I'm still able to wear, walk around in pants. You know, like I don't even need to bust out the shorts and st- everything right now. So I'm I'm a happy I'm a happy Kate. Right. right. We're not like D.C. or New York City, both of which are just sweltering right now for some apparent reason. Yeah. Yeah. It could certainly yeah. be worse. Um, yeah. The my my focus this week has been uh, the Olympics. I've been right. enjoying having that, except for all of the ads, because there have been an insane number of ads in prime time. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm on a four-hour delay with the Olympics, mm-hmm. uh, so I don't watch any of it live. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't really watched a whole lot, um, mainly because I've just watched a couple of the women's soccer games, and that's been about it, because I go to bed at like 8.30. So, so Olympic coverage is just starting as I'm going to bed, so it's just like, nah. So I haven't watched any, really, except for like a couple of soccer games, and I've watched those online. I've been, um, it's been mostly swimming and gymnastics for me because I've been watching. Right, that's, that's what they've time. been airing during prime time. That's all they've been airing. It's all they've been airing. Uh, but there's been some insane stuff going on. Watching Ellie Reisman just like destroy on her floor routine to get silver yes. for all around. Yeah. Was fantastic. That was awesome. And uh, though it was fun. It just, just I love the the narratives that NBC has been building with certain of the spectators, with like Ali Rison's parents just being. Oh God, they're the best. 
<laughs> the, I, I love how much they can't handle it. It's yeah. delightful. Um, or even just different teammates, everything. Like, it's just, it's been really fun. What, and, and who knows if that's what they're actually like. But yeah. the narrative that's been developed, you know, we've watched enough reality TV. We understand these sure. things. Uh, has been delightful. Um, I'm also very excited just because Leslie Jones is now down in Rio. There, right. Which is the best decision NBC has made. <laughs> It's very exciting. It's very exciting. Also very exciting uh, to transition us at the end of the podcast. We'll be talking with Alison Shoemaker from uh, the AV Club and several other places uh, about Carnival, which was a show I had never watched before and I have thoughts on. And I know you do, too. Yep. I have thoughts. I'm more conflicted than you are. And so I'm probably it's a good conversation. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's a good one. Um, So that's coming at the end of the podcast. But for now, uh, we we only have a handful of shows this week, so we're just putting it all together. We're going to listen to a little music here and then come back with our week in TV. We've got some finales. we got Tears, the end of the Stephen Bomb, or uh, mostly the end of the Stephen Bomb, and and a few other things. But uh, uh, we'll listen to some music, take a break, and be back with our week in TV. If I could begin to be half of what you think of me, I could do about anything. I could even learn how to love. When I see the way you act, wondering when I'm coming back, I could do about anything. I could even learn how to love like you. This week in TV, we're going to talk about the Angie Tribeca season finale, electoral dysfunction, then we'll talk Steven Universe, Beta, Earthlings, Back to the Moon, Bubbled, and The Kindergarten Kid. Uh, We'll move on to Great British Baking Show's penultimate episode, uh, Chocolate, Uh, then the Unreal finale, Friendly Fire. Um, I'll check in very briefly on the night of the season of The Witch, and we'll round things out with Mr. Robot. Uh, master slave so uh first up is angie tribeca which had its finale now we didn't talk about this last week we've been sort of fuzzy on the season as a whole how did the finale pay things off for you and uh did you like where things ended up i i didn't really care where things ended up which is that i i want i feel like the show and we've talked about this is just because of this kind of serialized mayhem global stuff with sergeant pepper and Diane Duran, which is a great name, admittedly. <laughs> um, that the fun, unified humor approach that was in season one with the very standalone cases where you could construct a number of jokes around a particular topic wasn't really there this time around as often. And I just kept kind of waiting for it to be like as funny as the first season was. And it never happened. And the finale just made me just go all right well, your comeback for season three next year i'll be really happy but hopefully but i was just kind of mad on all of this like even the kind of acknowledgement that they had constructed this semi-elaborate conspiracy type stuff that just ended with everyone pulling masks off mission impossible style was kind of funny but i still just went but i, I was kind of expecting you to solve this because you put so much effort into it <laughs> And you didn't. And I just went, 
Okay, but I appreciate James Franco just acknowledging that he was here for a cameo. <laughs> um, it sounds like the episode worked more for me than it did for you. Sure, because uh, I, I enjoyed it. I had fun with it, and I, I like when they're doing all the masks and back and forth. Like I actually really enjoyed that. I thought that was delightful. Um, that's again, that's a ridiculous level of humor. This is the more naked gun style that I really appreciated in season one. So for me, that really worked. I I would say, uh, you know, the thing, thoughts on the season as a whole, we've already, I'm sort of at, you know, what, what you were saying, what we've already said, I feel like they have, have lost some of the magic of season one. Um, I would hope Which that. Which is a ridiculous thing to say. Because it's still <laughs> like, it's still really fun. And they yeah. produce these all like pretty much back to back. But um, I, I'm hoping that in season three, first of all, we get more Hoffman. Right? Yes. Yeah. There was a, there was a significant lack of Hoffman. Yeah. I, I appreciate them wanting to give Deanne Cole more to do than act opposite a dog. But yeah, come on. Hoffman's great. Um, also, I really hope they let, uh, you know, just Angie Trebek could be a funny character instead yeah. of, you know, just get her back to the humor um, and, and really um, taking advantage of Rashida Jones' comedic chops. Um, and then just, like, because, like, I thought there was a lot of really fun bits in this. Like, w- when they cut to everybody waking up and, and Jerry Burns just, like, bursts out of ice water <laughs> for some reason. Like, that's the kind of stuff that I, I really in- enjoy. Um, so, right. I'm hoping, like, for me, the finale was more in keeping tonally with what I most appreciate in the show. So hopefully uh, season three will keep back into that. Um, But if nothing else, I appreciate them trying something new and not just running out of jokes and retreading things because um, they are just, they're unwilling to try new things. So they've tried this. It didn't really work for me, but hopefully in season three, they'll they'll come back with something new. Yeah, and fingers crossed. And... I, I think I was just frustrated because a lot of it just felt like narratively like a really kind of poor culmination. Mm-hmm. And the mask thing, I think, just got kind of progressively ridiculous, even though I like the Franco shout out. And I liked um, the lieutenant being like, my twin that was established in episode four, season one. <laughs> it's it's <canonical>. there. It's <laughs> yeah. canonical. I, I, I appreciated that a whole lot as mm-hmm. well. But I think my favorite bit was like the hotel frustration. Yeah was really, really good. And, like, to your point about wanting Rashida Jones to be funny, it's mm-hmm. just, like, she got to be funny this week for the first time in a while. Yeah. And that, I think, was ultimately what I was really missing from this season is that she just never got to be really, really funny this a lot this season. Yeah. Everyone else did. Everyone else had really standout episodes. But Jones just didn't get to be as funny. And that made me sad. Yeah. But you know what also made us sad in a positive way? Steven Universe. <sighs> okay, so first let's talk. First let's talk Amethyst um, and Smoky Quartz. I feel like that's where we need to. You know, we got Beta Earthlings back to the moon bubble. The kindergarten kid. We got to start by talking Amethyst. How did you feel about uh, you know Beta and Earthlings and, and the way they sort of wrapped up this arc with Amethyst? Uh, I really really liked it. I like that it wrapped up with Steven fusing, 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 fusing. 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 Fusing with a gem. That word didn't sound right <laughs> at all. Um, fusing with a gem. And I really liked the result. Um, it was a lot of fun, mainly because just from like a personality standpoint, I mean, there's this kind of glib confidence that perfectly merges the two of them together. And just their, just Smokey Quartz's choice of a weapon as a yo-yo yeah. is so great. 
And the animation-wise, and just what the storyboard artists came up with to show how it works was also just really, really fun. I really enjoyed just everything about how Smoky Quartz operated, the design of it, um, all of it. I was really, really happy with that. Um, yeah, I, I, I just really enjoyed that string, that like little two-parter. Um, I, I, I feel really bad about Jasper. Huh, okay. Yeah, a little bit bad, and mainly just because she... I, I, I don't quite know what Jasper was doing precisely. Like, she had this army of corrupted gems. To do what exactly? Mm-hmm. But she... I figured she was trying to find them to fuse with, because she was just wanting to fuse with someone that would stay with her yeah. after Lapis wouldn't wouldn't like re, wouldn't refuse again. Mm-hmm. Uh but that wasn't the sense that I got from that at all in this episode and I just kind of ended up feeling a little bit bad for her because I didn't feel like where the show left her made sense but also just this whole thing about Pink Diamond um which we can talk about in a much bigger sense. Mm-hmm. In a, in a little while. Um, just... I think she just ended up feeling really lost in the same way that Amethyst ended up feeling ended up feeling really lost, and I appreciate the show drawing a parallel. I mean, I don't feel super bad for her or anything. I just feel kind of bad for her. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I just... I need... I think I just needed that cleared up a little bit, and I think the decision to focus on Amethyst while correct because Amethyst is one of our main characters left me just a little fuzzy on what I was supposed to take away from that apart from the larger world building stuff uh so how did that work out for you for me the the Jasper story is very much in process I don't think this is the end of her story for even for a while I, I expect her to pop back up again in a significant way and soon yeah. Um, so for me, I was I was happy with it. I was fine with it um, because it it feels like she's had a significant revelation, which is why won't anyone stay fused? Why doesn't anybody want to be fused with me? Why why can't I sustain these fusions? Um, and it's like one of those situations where you're in one toxic relationship. That's okay. That might not be your fault. You're in several, and you can't make it. Maybe it's time to start looking inward and see what am I doing and or who am I choosing and why. Um, So I think that was a significant thing for her to ask herself in this last episode with with Jasper. And then, you know, she's she's bubbled away, but I think she'll be back again soon and not just because of the that 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 art released at Comic-Con, which includes Jasper. Uh, There's a picture, a shot of the drawing of different characters and Jasper's one of them. But, um, yeah, I, I actually really liked what we were getting. I liked that she had some, that she was doing stuff when she was off screen, that she has yeah. been, you know, finding these, these gems and trapping them and built, trying to build an army and trying to, you know, maybe follow in pink diamonds footsteps since, you know, we learn pink diamonds not there anymore. Um, yeah, I, 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 I thought, I, I think that, I, I get the sense that they're midway or part of the way through on a significant and very affecting storyline for Jasper. And so that's why I was 
very down with this. I also really like uh, the stuff that we saw with Amethyst. I thought her heart to heart with Steven. I mean, just this was the week of just Steven being amazing. These were like these are great Steven episodes. Um, but her heart to heart with Steven about like you, you're so much better. You are so much better than Jasper will ever be. We would never want you to be anything like Jasper. And that's a good thing and not a bad thing because Jasper's terrible. Um, I thought that was really affecting and having them fuse and like unintentionally so, you know, uh, was a nice way to kind of bring that all around. I'd also, I, I'm a little more conflicted on the notion of expanding fusion so deliberately to be outside of the sphere of a romantic connection. Okay, Which, sure. You know, so, like, with with Stevani, that's, I mean, they're, at the time, they're, like, 12, 13, but you could still argue that there's perhaps, like, a fledgling romantic connection there. But the effusion the, as a parallel for LGBTQ relationships that, like, you know, shunned by homeworld and all of this different stuff was is a really, really powerful metaphor. And so, it, and, and part of me is like, oh, it's too bad that, that can just now that they are extending this to Amethyst and Steven, it's it's showing different types of relationships, different types of friendships and different types of connections being just as powerful and just as special, which is great because that is that's true. But it also it's it's a little bit for me. It's a little uh, I was nice to have that thing that you could point to, for example, with Rose and Pearl having being able to fuse and fusing in the past as being an indication of just how powerfully uh they were connected and, and um i think we can assume in love how in love they were um based on you know the fact that they would fuse and stuff and so if you if if we'd have a situation where like greg and rose can't fuse that but 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 um rose and pearl could and that being a different like i, I liked the dynamics that brought to it if it if there is an implicit romantic subtext um to some extent. And so, so while I do, I, I thought this, the Smoky Corpse was awesome and that was a really great way to, to culminate that storyline. And, um, of course they were going to end up going there with fusion as well. They were, I'm not surprised we're having Steven fuse with the different gems and stuff. Um, a little part of me, little, there was a little, little twinge of like, Oh, it was nice having this special, like reserved just for the, for Steven and the female coded, like romantically connected gems, you know, it was a little part of me was like, oh, it's too bad that we've branched it out, but it was sort of inevitable. I don't know. I'm, I've been talking a long time. What do, what do you think about this? Well, I'm scratching my beard, as you can see, as our listeners are just like, well, what was that sound just now if they picked it up? Um, I think that you raise a really good point, and so now I'm immediately like wanting to complicate it because ugh, grad school um, <laughs> <laughs> is that so I guess my complication is the fact that a everyone still outside of the core trio keeps calling Stephen Rose Quartz. And so there's this weird for me, there's this very potentially very weird gender in betweenness almost possible yeah that i think plays that complicates like your read on it a little bit i understand mm -hmm. where you're coming from and i don't necessarily disagree either but i'm not as 
feeling a twinge just because I'm not quite sure how we're supposed to increasingly read Stephen. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Stephen knows how he's supposed to read himself anymore, to be honest. Uh, so you can see a romantic connection between Stephen and Amethyst then. That I'm just, I'm, I was seeing that, but because I think of her as one of his like aunts. Well, but... I don't even see. Well, see, that's the kind of the thing that I kind of push on is that I don't necessarily see a romantic connection between, like, Pearl and Amethyst. Yeah, that's true. And they form Opal not very often, mm-hmm. admittedly, but I mean they form Opal. Yeah. So that's and, true. So that's kind of where I go. Mm, I don't really see that as like a romantic connection mm-hmm. and i mean it's one that they've actively tried not to do because pearl doesn't really like it yeah <laughs> well and they, they like opal they only fuse into opal if they have to for a mission and yeah. we only get sardonyx if they have to for a mission right so the ones that we've seen the fusions we've seen be out of just emotion and joy have been garnet and stevani and now smoky quartz Right. And so that's a significant company to, to be in, I yeah. would say. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd agree that it's a significant company, absolutely. So I think that's just where I went. And plus, like, circling back is just... Stephen doesn't even... Like, this reference is something in one of the later episodes, is that Stephen doesn't even know what will happen to him if someone breaks the gem mm-hmm. in his belly button. He has no idea. And he just kind of realized that this week. He was just like... I don't know what would happen to me if someone broke broke my gym. And now you're just like, well, what would happen to Steven? And I think that gets into this very kind of in-between space that he is in a number of ways. I mean, it's representing just like a shift into puberty, which is going to be coming sooner or later, like from a narrative standpoint, and is being dramatized a lot within this past couple of weeks in, in a lot of ways. But just, I think he's a, a very in-between kind of state so and i think that's where my flexi- the flexibility i'm kind of having with this is coming from is that steven's in a very in-between space yeah yeah it's true i just need to think about it more is what yeah. i need to do and I, I look forward <laughs> to doing it we have we have a uh, as we record there's another episode of student universe tonight the final one in right. the steven bomb and that apparently will deal heavily with fusion so <laughs> this might all be moot <laughs> as of next right week. no yeah and then we'll just be like well no you were wrong Kate or, was just like yes or vindication vice versa, vice versa. <laughs> yeah um well let, let's move on though and talk about the rest of, of these episodes what we get with them because um we get some really intense stuff with pink diamond the discovery that rose quartz shattered pink diamond we get a Wiley e. Coyote episode. Oh gosh, I just want to talk about the Wiley e. Coyote episode. Okay, let's talk about that one because <laughs> no. I did not care for it. Oh, I well, okay. So, con- con- context and the idea of television flow and everything. I watched that episode immediately after watching this week's Mr. Robot. Ah, uh, okay. We'll yeah. get to. Yeah. Um. So I. I so needed something that wasn't Mr. Robot <laughs> that I ended up really enjoying Kindergarten Kid just because it took me a second to figure out what they were doing. Yeah. And then it was just like, we're just going to keep dropping boulders on Peridot. <laughs> this is fantastic. I love this. No, because, I mean, initially I was just like, well, her mental powers aren't working. And I and that's they're just playing that up for affect. They're just playing that up. And I just went, that's fine. But then I went, wait a minute. She's forming a plan with a rocket. 
Basically. Well, and in <laughs> the monster, this is the only one of the corrupted gem monsters we see who has feet and like bipedal. And, yeah, you know, it's yeah. Very much an roadrunner stand-in but at least it's not like a jerk like the actual roadrunner is because the real uh, roadrunner is a jerk i feel like that little like claw on the rock you know thing was a little bit a but, little a little bit but i knew well well deserved like very much deserved yeah. and earned right. and everything um what i really enjoyed about kindergarten kid i i get i appreciate the concept but for me it went on too long sure um, and that that's fair it does go on for quite some time but what I really liked about it is, again, this was another great Steven episode that yeah. just like the, you know, I, when you deal with kids a lot, when you like I, I teach children violin, um, I, you know, interact with kids on a almost daily basis. Um, every now and again, every now and again, it's like you both are always aware of their maturity and how much they're always listening to everything that you're saying. And it's so many people underestimate kids yes um you're both aware of that and then at the same point at the same time it's very easy to to be blindsided by awareness and kindness and warmth from kids that you and in depth that you wouldn't necessarily expect them to to have an introspection uh every now and again where you where you just go like you're awesome. Thank you for yeah. being so awesome. And for me, in Kindergarten Kid, when Steven says, oh, she's all alone out there, no, the monster was one of those moments. I thought that was such a beautiful, like, simple way to show how aware Steven is and how kind he is and that he never for a moment forgets that these monsters are people or are we're, we're gems and that what happened to them wasn't necessarily their fault. Um, and as, as he gets gains more perspective and, you know, has some illusions uh, shattered uh, about, about his mother and about the war, his existence, the fact that he's, he exists could be a, you know, like a byproduct of what, you know, like what caused all this to happen. So if he wasn't there, if like, if, if something else, if things had gone a different way and like Rose Quartz had turned herself in or something, then the war hadn't fallen out the way it did so that she could end up on earth and meet Greg and he could exist. These gems probably wouldn't be corrupted. They probably could be sentient thinking, talking, interacting people. So there easily could be some guilt in that, you know, tied up for him. But I, I've, that's the part of this that I really was connecting with and appreciating. Um, so that's, that's really what I was feeding into. So I was feeding into the gooey, mushy, interpersonal things. Right. And Whereas I was acne. just happy about the Looney Tunes. Right. I was just happy to have Looney Tunes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts on Kindergarten Kid? Or, or should we talk Rub- the rubies and uh, bubbled and back to the back to the moon? We should talk about how upset one of the rubies was that she didn't get to sit in Jasper's lap. <laughs> <laughs> that was adorable. <laughs> I loved the... Uh, one of them like whispers like mouths and it's not vocalized but one of them actually like mouths i love you (laughs) and it's just like it's so great it's so great i love the rubies (laughs) the rubies are so fantastic because they're at the same point so straightforward single-minded and easy they're they're so easily duped yeah but to have them be so easily duped and so adorable Right. And simultaneously, so terrifying. Like in the bu- in bubbled, you know the the eye ruby, 
I mean, I was talking with my sister about this. We're talking about the significance of the shape of the weapon that gets pulled out. And it is a, it it almost looks like a shiv or something. It's like, it's like a, a hard, short, very, very personal weapon. Right. We've got reach weapons for, um, for Amethyst and for, uh, Pearl, um, we've got defensive weapons for Steven. We've got just like kicking ass and taking aim punches with Amethyst. But this is a short, this is a dagger, basically. Right. It's a last last resort type of weapon. Well, or it's a I want to see your eyes while I kill you weapon. And that had a, and, and, and even just geographically, they're in a small bubble. You need a small weapon. But yeah. the personal nature of that was really striking to me. And also just the shape of it, it feels more like that's not a dagger that's going to cut skin. That's a dagger that you're going to shit. You're going to sh- uh, like shove that down really hard to try to crack a yeah. gem. That ruby is not interested in, in blooping or whatever. Right. Rose quartz. That is a very intentional. I'm going to shatter you. And yeah. uh, so I think it was very important that there was a, a gem that couldn't just be swayed over by Stephen's adorableness. That he was there was nothing he was going to be able to do to to get Ruby on board, um, and I think that was very powerful. But for me, just the the iconography of it and the the power of the vocal performance and the writing for that Ruby was really striking. No, uh, I would agree with all of that. And and your focus on that was really good because I just, I mostly like focused on the the expulsion of the ruby out of the bubble. Because mm-hmm. I just went, that was just crazy to me. Mm-hmm. Like watching that happen, I kind of like let out a little gasp. Um, just because, I mean, self-protection and self-defense and everything... But it wasn't one of those situations where, like, in my brain, I was just went, well, no, just do, like, a lo- elongated bubble like you did before and just keep the pathway just really narrow and hope someone shows up to save you. But instead, it's just, like, the ruby just ends up floating away into space. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, that's a really very conscious... Well, it's not a conscious. It's an instinctual thing for Steven that he did there that was just... Ruby's just going to keep floating through space until she dies? I don't know if Ruby's die in the vacuum of space. I don't think they do. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think they do. So she's Until gonna... something finds her. Right. So she's just going to spend the rest of her gem life floating yeah. through the abyss. Yeah. That's really dark. <laughs> yeah. I think for me, I, I didn't focus on that as much because I immediately in my nerd brain go to... Well, the sphere, the bubble, is going to be very self-sustaining. It's not going to take... once. It's, it's such a strong structure that once yeah. it's established, he doesn't have to think about it. But something like the long one with the connector, you could see how hard he had to work to maintain that. So I think he was... Yeah. I, what I was expecting was it to be two bubbles next to each other that were, like, connected, you know? Mm-hmm. That's what I was expecting to have happen. I didn't, wasn't expecting Ruby to float up in space either. But um, So it didn't occur to me that of that that being a choice even if like a sub- subliminal or you know right it's just a very instinctual kind of... reaction type of thing where yeah this is this is my way out right now yeah well and, and i appreciate that 
you know, he just, he just understands that you're not going to be able to do anything. You have, you know, like he, I appreciate how close he comes to dying. Yeah. Cause you could see him getting more and more blue. It's like the, bu- I like that the, that they just established the bubbles produce their own oxygen. I thought that was just a nice, clever way to get around that. Um, yeah. And, but, but, but the, and the bubble protects him, but it can only, it can't completely protect him from the cold of space. So you see him getting more and more blue the longer he's out there. He's just kind of curled up. It was really scary. And having the gems find him and taking off, Garnet taking down the glasses and everything. It was really touching. I love the use of Love Like You for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um... The song choice was really nice, and I'm assuming that that's where we were talking about it from Comic-Con, from you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they played the whole song at right. Comic-Con, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I I did really enjoy how that kind of, like, wrapped itself up. But, I mean, I you just knew that they were going to come in the ship to save him. So it was yeah. just a matter of when, within the course of the episode, that that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really nice. Um I think the only other thing that really stood out for that particular episode for me was just how really gorgeous they painted space. Mm-hmm. It was such a pretty episode. Like they've done a like I, I I praise like the animation, the storyboarding for like the Beta and Earthling episode, but th- it was just really good background art in that in this episode in Bubble and I just I just wanted to stare at space for the, the entire episode. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz it was really really pretty. Yeah, I yeah, it really was. Um I we should talk a little bit then about Back to the Moon. I love that right after all this amethyst um you know self-doubt they gave her such a win in Back to mm-hmm. the Moon. The fact that she all so close. She almost <laughs> single like just through sheer willpower and badassery like takes care of things. Um, was great, but what do you? How do you feel about this stuff with Pink Diamond? Um, I think for me, when that was revealed, I kind of felt a little like I mean, I'm feeling like a little more vindicated in my approach that Rose is often a little savvier and a little more of a tactician than I think she's often being portrayed as. More of a Dumbledore? Yeah. I think I think that's a fair uh, fair um, description and a decent ana- a good analogy for that. But yeah. Then we're necessarily have been shown, like, I mean, she, she comes off as nice and goofy uh, in the Greg flashbacks. Um, mm-hmm. And through the Pearl stuff, she becomes this very noble entity. But like I've said with the Garnett origin episodes that she's always kind of struck me as being able to see an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And <sighs> admittedly, like if the pink diamond and I mean, we've got plenty of like time, who knows to find out how all of this works out is that whether or not like sh- maybe she tried to convince pink diamond to like s- just, understand that this is what needed to happen but the fact that she's willing to take that step maybe after after all avenues have been exhausted is just a huge thing and it really kind of begins to clarify a bunch of stuff like say bismuth and 
mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff where it's just like, well, I, I already shattered this one diamond, slippery slope. I don't want to do this again. Mm-hmm. I don't want a weapon that will do this again. And I certainly don't want to do it to maybe boots on the ground type of grunts type of situation. Yeah. Or just this idea of, I know what it is to shatter a gem. And I'm. Mm-hmm. it's easy for you to say, we need to just shatter them. But I know what it is to do that, and we're not doing right. that. Um, or you know, or this this notion of you know, Bismuth taking it as like again high and mighty. If there is a class distinction that we were guessing between Rose and Bismuth, even mm-hmm. this notion of well, it's you're it's good enough for you to do it, but when I want to do the same thing, I'm not allowed. Um, yeah, which I think is is certainly interesting. Um, it, I think it's important to remember who we're always seeing Rose through. Yeah, we're always seeing no, that's her, really key. We're always hearing remembrances of her from people who love her. Um, it's we should remember that Jasper talked about respecting Rose and respecting her tactics. Yeah, which should be just as telling. Um, and uh, certainly, if if we had the Rubies give their take on on Rose, I'm sure she'd be very very different. But the Rose that we have met is not an intergalactic general, right? She's like, oh, babies are adorable. Let's, right. you know, not understand how a Ferris wheel works, you know. <laughs> like, that is, not a, that is not someone who could lead a war. So um, having, having Stephen have to come to terms with his mother as a person rather than as his mother, as this, like, angelic figure who he never got to meet. I mean, like, any, any chi- right. child coming to terms with the fact that their parent is a person rather than, you know mom or dad is already can be a challenging enough process or like a really sobering process. So having to do that in absentia uh, certainly could be very interesting. And I I think Steven handled it with a lot of maturity. Yes, he does. And I think that there's just a lot of, there's maturity, but there's also just conflict because everything that he learns kind of sullies that giant portrait that's in the temple of her Mm -hmm. it's just like this gets this gets a lot more complicated like when you were describing her being a person it's not even like her being a person it's just her being something that exists beyond that portrait Mm -hmm. because that's that's really all she's been and like a collection of stories from greg yeah (laughs) and now the, the other gems so i mean it's really fascinating to find all this stuff out and I'm excited to see more of what they're going to do with it. I don't expect that we're going to find, like, Rose is this very, um, like, bloodthirsty, ruthless type of person. But I think that, because that's, that I think would be a great deal out of odds and with what she was. And even, like, with the Bismuth episode, wouldn't re- reflect her. But she's, I think she's just going to be depicted as more and more savvy the more that we find out from her. Yeah. Which I, I'm okay with, and I would rather have as well. Yeah. I just, I would love to, to I mean, I, we'll see how the show develops this, and, uh, and I know Rebecca Sugar has said um, that she does have a, a an idea of how the show will end. She does have an ending. There is an ending. Sort of like you think of something like Gravity Falls, where eventually it was heading to an apocalypse and right. the apocalypse had to come and they had to avert it and then there's no more story you can't really do a story after that you know um so there this idea that there is an ending to steven universe and 
she's very open to it changing depending on how things develop. But like she has a sense of an end of a story. And if they don't get into, if we don't like through time travel or memories or projected holograms or something really get to, to spend significant time with Rose Quartz, that's the kind of thing that I would love to see a prequel miniseries or something to get a sense of like, how did she first realize, oh wait, I don't just have to be a Quartz. Like yeah. it seems like it's very much, she was the instigating factor of getting people to look around, to not accept the status quo, but what opened her eyes? Like, yeah. you know, like I, I, I think there's so much really fascinating character that you can explore with Rose but we can't because she's dead, you know? <laughs> or <laughs> well, she's not dead, but she doesn't... She's transubstantiated or whatever. Well, I mean, we've been told that she... When she came to Earth, she saw that, like, life was, like, super vibrant there and worth protecting. Yeah. But... I kind of, like, balk even against that idea. Mm-hmm. Because it seems... I balk against that idea because a lot of me just goes, yeah, that's kind of like when we say that the founding fathers of the United States just really wanted freedom from tyranny. And we go, but there were a lot of economic considerations in that idea of freedom from tyranny. Yeah. We just kind of gloss over sometimes that really yeah. benefited them, mm-hmm. but didn't necessarily benefit other people. <laughs> yeah. And so when we're like told like, okay, Every life's important and it should be protected. Well, Rose, what was different from all the other planets that you possibly colonized on behalf of the Diamond Authority, which is mm-hmm. what it's called, not Diamond Hegemony, mm-hmm. um, as I kept using last week, even though I like Diamond Hegemony a lot more. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, that. so what was like the shift for that, basically, and where did that come from, I think is the more operative question for me at this point. Yeah. No, I, I think it's... There's so much potential in this universe. So I look for. Hopefully, it's not ending anytime soon. You know. No. But, no. but I yeah, that's the kind of thing that I would just love to see when the show does eventually end. Just like spin off, you know, comic books and you know all sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. They could have a lot of fun with it. Um. Any final thoughts on on this week of this the last week of Stephen's summer adventures? Ugh. Don't remind me. Yeah. For <laughs> listeners who don't watch Steven Universe, who haven't skipped... Like, I don't know why you haven't skipped ahead if you don't watch Steven <laughs> yeah. Universe and you don't want to hear us talking about it. Um, but please do watch Steven Universe. It's uh, As I understand, the first two seasons are up on Hulu. Right. Um, Even though now accessing Hulu is kind of a pain in the ass. But. Yeah. And um, the full... I believe the full third season and the full, so far, fourth season are all up at CartoonNetwork.com. Like, okay. if you have the app and you have cable, you can watch all of them. Um, so it is possible to catch up on this show. I, I get frustrated because um, there's a lot of people who share very similar TV tastes with us, Noel, and... and you know, on uh, like on Twitter and uh, and in person, you know, IRL, um, TV fans, TV critics, like they're who aren't watching the show and who just won't give it a shot. And I don't, or like go, oh yeah, I meant to, but they're never gonna actually sit down and and watch it. And I, I it's frustrating to me because I there isn't a good reason. So more people, like how many critics do you know 
who are who are watching this Le- friend of the show Les Chapel. Right, and even he's like fourteen episodes behind. Shame on you, Les. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he has an excuse. He has a new cat to play with, which I is mean... adorable. It's a super <laughs> cute cat. Um, it's being reviewed over at the AV Club. Right. Um, and there's like one or two other places that will write up occasional things about it. But do you know any other critics who are watching Steven Universe? Not off the top of my head, or like folks that are like at watching it like day to day, like we are. Like, um, whether or not they're, like, watching it later on type of thing or, like, uh, like in a big chunk, I'm mm-hmm. not entirely sure. Um, but I feel, and I was actually talking about this with, um, Corey a little bit, um, when we were talking about, like, just shows, and I was talking a little bit about Steven Universe with him, because he doesn't, he hasn't watched any of it either, um, is that I feel like the, like, the cycle of praise for Steven Universe was, like, last year. Mm-hmm. During the other Stephen Bomb and every uh, and Jailbreak and everything, where there were a lot of like, why isn't anyone watching this show? And the cycle of it just this this year went. Well, why are we still watching Unreal and Mr. Robot? Yeah. <laughs> and so, but it feels weird that we're not talking about it more because it's been just so really thoughtful and deeply emotional in a way, basically. Only one other show on TV has been this year, and that's the Great British Baking Show. Um, and but in a totally different way, obviously. Um, that I don't understand. I don't understand. Like Vox did one with Caroline, uh, published a piece I think this week about it. Um, but Vox isn't one to do like episodic reviews or anything. And I feel like it's been about it that I've seen anyway that has come out. And I'm even just talking people tweeting about it. Right. No one's like barely, like I can think of, aside from Eric, who's reviewing it at the AV Club, aside from you and me, um, I can think of like one other person who tweets about it on my feed. Yeah. And maybe we just need to add more people to our feed, but I, I just don't get it. I'm frustrated. And hopefully if anybody's listening to this who hasn't checked it out yet, do. Like I, I, for, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, this is the next Harry Potter I think that Steven yeah. Universe is the next, if you liked Harry Potter, I think it's the next thing in that, where it's an entire world and you watch the narrative grow up and mature as the main character does. Um, yeah. So I just, I think it's wonderful. Okay. Uh, we've been talking for way too long about this. Next week, we will only have two episodes to talk about. We likely will be talking much less about Steven Universe. Uh, but we'll also be talking a lot. We can next just start week rewatching it. About like, yeah, I mean, we should just start over because I mean, how long have you been talking about this on the podcast? Uh, just I started watching it last year. So. Well, there you go. So we've got like an entire season and a half <laughs> that we can just recap from going on. Going on. Well, um, what we should uh, we're, we're going to talk less about Steven Universe next week probably, but we're probably actually going to talk more about Great British Baking Show next week because the finale is next week finale is next week but But this week we had uh, chocolate and we uh, gotta talk a bit about it i'm i'm still like okay you were asleep i'm assuming Mm -hmm. when i I was loving it though i was you were waking me up i'm not gonna lie but it was oh no no no, it was worth it it was so worth it i love it i I will keep that mind when i watch the finale don't please tweet at me at all hours uh listeners and noel about anything baking show anything steven universe i love that stuff okay so to put this in context like i'm on the west coast kate's central and central time and so i'm watching this at like 9 30 10 o'clock my time 
Mm-hmm. Which is a terrible mistake, not knowing how stressful this episode was going to be. <laughs> and I'm just like, uh, well, I always, I always tweet at Kate when I'm watching the show because I watch it like time shifted because I have to. And so I was just like, okay, I'm going to watch this before bed. I'll just tweet at Kate about it. And I chuckled to myself evilly and hit like. Um, and then my tweets became increasingly unhinged (laughs) and stressed out as I was watching the episode. Just like, it was, it was bad, everyone. It was bad. And now that I know, like, you're getting push notifications about it, I feel really terrible because it was like this long string of 10 or 12 tweets about the episode. (laughs) (laughs) And just like random stuff of like, Nadia, you got a handshake. I'm dying over here. Mm-hmm. And then the suggestion that someone needs to take the final minutes scoring from mm-hmm. the Great British Bake Off and mash it up with Hannibal serving food. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, no, that's not an okay idea. <laughs> but at 1030 at the end of my really stressed out experience watching chocolate. Yeah. It made perfect sense because I was as stressed watching this episode of Great British Baking in a different way as I was watching basically any episode of Hannibal. (laughs) Well, okay, so this, we start out, they have to do, what, chocolate tart first, right? Right, they have to do, like, a chocolate tart. Which, you know, that that is already an entertaining and delicious-looking, might I add, uh, challenge. But then they did not come to play technical chocolate souffle. I have attempted to make a souffle twice in my life and failed horrendously the first time. And theoretically, I don't know if I failed the second time because I still, I don't actually know what souffle is supposed to taste like. I was not (laughs) wowed. So I assume I screwed something up because I was just like, huh, this doesn't seem like something to be for all that fuss to be about. So I probably did it wrong. Uh, But it's basically just what Nadia said in the previous episode about the, um, the muckatines. M- She's like, yeah, I see the rest of them. Like, oh, that's really fiddly. I'm not going to do it. That's how yeah. I feel about souffles. So I, when they, that was their technical. Uh, I just thought it was brilliant. I love that they do not pull their punches on Baking Show. So, and like my tweets reflect this. I was just like, what is this technical? Why are they isolating people? Why, why is she alone in the kitchen? What is this? Oh my God, it's a souffle. That isn't fair. <laughs> Because souffles are terrible. Like, as you were saying, like, I just know from reputation that souffles just are really difficult to make. I, I have never tried to bake them. The most I can do are, like, bake and break cookies. So I can't imagine handling a souffle. <laughs> and <laughs> so I was just freaking out and I was so stressed. And I've just so latched on to Nadia because, like, and Nadia's just like, I'm never doing this again. I'm never making a souffle. She snaps at who does she snap at i forget i don't even remember but she snaps at one of the hosts and she immediately apologizes she's just like jekyll hyde moment i'm sorry but i mean she snaps at one of the hosts because she's so stressed about this friggin souffle Mm -hmm. and i'm just like i I can't deal with this (laughs) nadia's upset (laughs) yeah well and because she's just not nadia being stressed like we're already, if we're if, as you know, somewhat educated viewers who have strong feelings about um, uh, baking and souffles. Like for me, it's uh, I always go back to the Julia Child, you know, baking with Julia with the collar and everything. Like I, I have other memories about. I have more memories about watching how to cook souffles on TV and about how they're really hard uh, than I do actually eating or trying to make souffles. Um, but we already have you know emotions tied up with it. But then like she's like our avatar. 
In, yes. In, in the, the that tent. She's right. so emotive. Um, right. She's so bitter. So, God, she's so emotive. And I mean, it's in a very real way, in a way that I feel like Ian just isn't. Like, Ian gets kind of frustrated, but he's just kind of, like, laughing it off sometimes. Mm-hmm. And Tamal, like, gets... Tamal's very wrapped up in his head, but he's really... He's just very laid back, though, at the same time, I yeah. feel like. Like, he messes up. He just kind of, like... He self-deprecates about it. Mm-hmm. And then he's kind of like, okay. And then Flora, I'm just... Flora, just... Make the damn thing that they told you to make. <laughs> and stop with the fiddly bits. Yeah, seriously. Just, <laughs> I, you know. And she... I hate saying this, but Flora reminds me of a lot of folks that got an A minus on something and immediately go to the goes to the instructor and goes, So what can I do to get this up to an A? <laughs> and and she's I, I think I like Floor more than you do. For me she's uh she is endearing. Um I right. very uh, I, I do mean, like her, but yeah. it's just Nadia is just really expressive in very different ways from everyone else. Yeah. Well and also it's just like, you know, I, I feel like it was you know, Flora's time. Yes. It, well, I mean... The, she the, made the same mistake a bunch of times. Right. And the pack had thinned out enough that it was just like, you made that same mistake, but everyone else made much bigger mistakes earlier. Mm-hmm. So that's why you got by. But now, you didn't learn anything. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just not gonna... You kept making macaroons. Yeah. <laughs> Stop making macaroons. Um, do you want to talk about the showstopper a little bit here, then? Yes. Um, so... Here's where I go, that chocolate well is not a f***ing showstopper. Because it's not. (laughs) Harsh words from Noel. Okay, I thought the chocolate well was very cool. It's very cool. I like that it worked. But I immediately just went, wait a minute. Your bucket's not made of chocolate? No. (laughs) Because I thought the bucket was going to be made of chocolate too. And if the bucket had been made of chocolate, I would have been like, then I'm kind of okay with the fact that you've got white chocolate in a plastic tube. Mm-hmm. But you've got white chocolate in a plastic tube. Okay. I'm not impressed by that. The it one... looks it looks really nice. Uh-huh. I'm not saying it didn't look nice that it didn't take any like skill. But I'm kind of with Paul where I go, was this really all you did? Yeah. In fair the enough. time allotted? Okay. No, yeah. I was much more impressed by the carousel and by yes, the... Yes, the carousel uh, was really nice, even it though was, it apparently tasted terrible. But it looked super cool. Yeah. Um, and the peacock, too, was just gorgeous. The peacock was so nice. And, like, one of the things, like, I remember tweeting at you now, because I'm reliving that entire night now. <laughs> Tweet like, pillow, pillow clutch to my chest while I'm watching this on my Chromebook is that I was freaking out because instead of Flora doing a lot of stuff, Nadia was doing a lot of stuff. And I just went, no, (laughs) Nadia, stop doing stuff. Uh (laughs) You're doing little fiddly things. Stop. Just, Mm -hmm. no, don't do that. But then it came out looking really good and it tasted really good. So I felt really, I felt much better afterwards. But like in the process of them doing that, I just went, no, no, Nadia, no, you, you, you're you kind of messed up. Even though it's been a day, you're still maybe messed up from the souffle and understandably don't mm-hmm. do this, but you, you practiced and it came out perfect. So who cares? <laughs> yeah, I don't okay. even remember what Tamal did for his showstopper. Yeah, um, yeah, it's not coming to me either. I think I feel like it was solid. but Oh, no, it wasn't. He did the bell tower with the really oh. sloppy looking piping. And oh, everything yeah. that looked yeah. really good from far away, but as soon as you got up to it, you went, 
you didn't you you just went like this and i'm shaking my hand in a really like shaky way yeah yeah well how are you feeling about uh you know going into the final here do you feel like they have the right three yes based on how everything's like progressed this season compared to like last season where everyone a lot of people just kind of felt like really consistent Mm -hmm. throughout where it just felt kind of tough to me to decide this yeah everyone this week that ended up going it felt really motivated by just they had really bad weeks weekends Mm -hmm. and so at this point it's just like these are the people who had either just really consistent weekends for the most part or they just they benefited from the fact that other people just had worse weekends than those people obviously had to go Mm mm-hmm so just yeah i think based on just consistency of things i feel like they ended up with the best three that they could okay and you're still pulling for nadia in the in the final at this point if i wasn't i'd be a traitor um (laughs) just because of how deep obviously deeply invested i got in how chocolate played out um Mm -hmm. yeah no i need nadia to win okay and if i'm not i'm going to I'm going to be really upset and I mean I'm going out tonight with a friend of mine and I'm just basically just like how quickly can I get home from getting Asian fusion tapas with this with her Mm -hmm. to get back to watch this as (laughs) early as possible (laughs) well I look forward to the tweets that are headed my way because I will have so much fun I'm so sorry no 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 I seriously like I I don't care if it is 1 a.m. your time I want tweets when you watch this. I want the insty live Noel reaction because okay. I have so many so many feels tied into this finale. But um, uh, we're going to move on to a different finale now uh, in yes. our conversation. One that we are less <laughs> well, I guess we still we have almost as strong of feels about just in a different yeah. way, and that's Unreal Friendly Fire. Um, I feel like we're going to keep this at least for me. I'm going to keep this kind of quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought that. The finale was much better than the season deserved, given the overall level of the season. Um, and that the reveal with Ruby actually, for me, call me a sap or a sucker, but it really did work for me. I thought that I was like, oh, that's what they were doing. Okay, fair enough. Then that that part paid off. Other parts didn't pay off, but that part of it paid off. Um, but it does not... But, I mean, and I try not to read interviews with people very much, but this finale and reading some of the like responses from the showrunner and creator, uh, co-creator, co-showrunner, whatever of the show, they don't encourage me about next season and about like understanding what this show got so wrong in season two. And even for a lot of people at the end of season one. Um, so I'm not super encouraged um, how did you feel about the heel turn and reveal that uh, Coleman had like always been this bad guy, wolf in sheep's clothing, and you know we're supposed to be rooting for beats up, you know, women when he's drunk, Jeremy, and uh, Quinn's given a second look to Chet. Like, how are you feeling about this finale and where it brings everlasting and where it brings our characters? I basically, I mean, that's a terrific question, and I'm not feeling great about, like, the show's prospects going forward. I'm not feeling good about, like, Everlasting's prospects going forward. Like, 
I don't know why any executive would keep the show, bring the show back <laughs> after <laughs> just this season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, well, why would you do that? <laughs> it, it would have to get insane ratings. Yeah. And I, I mean, do we even know if this is like on a broadcast network? Yeah. I think it's supposed to be network. I don't know. I um, and I, I suppose I it just know. doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I, I suppose ultimately it doesn't matter. Because the show, Unreal itself, doesn't care. If they got rid of Everlasting as the center of of Unreal, which they totally could. Right, um, because so, let's be honest, they didn't care about the show. They didn't care about Everlasting this season. Oh, not at all. Not at all. The only trouble would be they would have to get rid of some, their secondary characters. And some yeah. of them we would not like to lose like i would like i would not like to lose jay or um whose name i now know yay right. yay <laughs> or madison but right. i don't care about anyone else yeah um so like i would be happy to lose jeremy i would but i would miss madison and jay i would be happy to lose chet but i don't think they want to lose chet so no they like, do they do not want to lose chet or jeremy at this point yeah like they they don't see the show is having some of the problems that I think it has, has. Yeah. and that's really where that's what's making me less Fancy. hopeful yeah about a season three yeah and I don't even like Coleman's like for really quick deterioration in okay so here's the big thing that I've had an issue with for a lot of like some of the bigger stuff this season is that so much of it ends up happening off screen mm -hmm. or we find out about it off screen like yeah. Quinn's tidying up of the shooting happens off screen. She's just like, I got a lot of money taken care of. And hey, I found out from your ex-girlfriend that you were a prick and paid these women to pretend to be whatever it was in his film. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, but, but you didn't find any of this stuff out. You're just saying this right now to me to justify his suddenly being an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I get that we're getting it through, like, him sleeping with Yael and everything, but it's just like, where did, where did any of this come from? When did you have time to do this? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's just, it's... It's really sloppy writing. <laughs> yeah, I, it's just I don't understand why they felt the need to do this. Like, why we spent so much time at the beginning of the season. Like, when I look, when I plot the characters' arcs throughout the season, like, why did we spend so many episodes with men's right, Chet, if they were going to go, oh, never mind, actually, right. let's redeem him. Like, like it, I really don't, I don't get. Like, why did we spend two or three episodes with Quinn being terrible at her job so that she can argue with Chet so that they can bring in Colm? Like, it just feels very, very contrived. And, um... Yeah, there's already a lot of contrivance on this show. I need them to not contrive the characters. No, I agree. And I think that was the other thing is like the show wanted to address a bunch of different ideas and then go, okay, we're done with that idea. Next thing. And it was just, well, no, pick, pick a couple of big concepts. Mm-hmm. And then look through those concepts through your lens of an exploitative reality show. But try to avoid becoming an exploitative show yourself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Which is what ended up really happening this season. And, like, kind of teetered last season to a certain degree. But, like, 
Jeremy killing two people by apparently rigging their car? Cutting their brakes? I don't know how that worked. Because, again, yeah. it happened off screen. We don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> not the show I thought I was watching. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm very underwhelmed. Any final thoughts on Unreal? No. No. Just, I'm not... Uh, I probably had some, but I've forgotten them in my haze of... Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> in my haze okay. of ugh, reaction to all of this. Fair enough. Um, I'm going to talk quickly about The Night Of, the season of The Witch. This episode sees Stone really get into work um, establishing a timeline, figuring out what happened, uh, or trying to, and, and starting to build a case. And so because of that, it was much more satisfying. I don't well, think it good. was great, but it was, uh, for me at least, a move in the right direction. And again, showing somebody at least being curious about the case. And that's the more interesting part of this for me than, you know, the the stuff in the prison. The stuff in the prison, I like the, the, the way they handled, the stuff they did this week in the prison, the, the turn of that um, was, and, and especially we get an exchange between uh, our lead and, and you know, Saturo, and the, that moment played really powerfully. I thought, like, it's just, it's not powerfully set, gives it too much import, but it was a really effective moment between the two of them. Um, just a delivery from Totoro and a look. Um, and uh, so that, it didn't make all this time we spent in the prison watching storylines that we've seen in other shows before. It doesn't make that retroactively worthwhile, but um, at least they're connecting that more with, um, by, by making stone aware somewhat of what's going on in the prison that adds import to the case and this idea of the timeline of how long is it going to take to get to trial what is going to have to happen you know what what is what is Nas going to have to do in order to survive in prison and how will that affect his likelihood of being able to to be a likable defendant um so, like, that added stakes to it that were lacking earlier, I thought. So, um, I, I just think it was a step in the right direction. And when you have the opportunity to, to watch it, I look forward to your thoughts. But let's move on right away to Mr. Robot, uh, Master Slave. And um, lots of very strong reactions to this episode. And it's, like, Alf yeah, I, cameo. I, I, I would assume. Oh, yeah. God. I thought it was fine. God. I was just like, Okay. Uh, mostly, I was happy that we had more time with the ladies. Because, again, I continue to be way more interested in the ladies of, of Mr. Robot than in anything with Elliot. Um, so I was just sort of like, okay, fair enough. Um, they did something different. I guess that's kind of cool. But, you know, I would rather just watch Too Many Cooks. Um, yeah. Yeah. But Why I, wouldn't I, you want to watch Too Many Cooks? You it's didn't fantastic. like it, though. You uh, have strong feelings. So, Noel, where, yeah. where are you at with this? <laughs> oh. Kate, I told you I'd keep watching. <laughs> you do not have to keep watching. I've no, 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 I, no, no. I said I, I told you I would keep watching. Oh, is I don't this the past know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna like. I'm gonna. It'll, it'll still record. I don't know if I'm gonna watch it next week just because. I don't understand why we needed that whole thing. Uh huh. Like okay, so. It's just, okay, so to put it in context for someone who hasn't watched it, which I think is fair given everything we're about to discuss with it, is that Elliot 
well, first of all, it's important to remember that at the start of the episode, we get a 1990s-styled USA Network intro, like, channel identification. Uh, an introduction to their Wednesday Up All Night or Wednesday Wake Up programming block. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the first 17 minutes of the episode are shot in a 4 by 3 ratio with just slightly fuzzy enough to look okay on HD but not be so obnoxiously non-HD that it's hard for you to watch on your HD TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, and then it's all done in a multicam sitcom sort of way. There is an opening theme song that has like basically shits on these 1990s sitcoms really hard. Um, smugly really hard. Um, uses basically the full house font for Mr. Robot. Um, and all of this stuff that just then steadily lampoons the conventions of a 1990s family-driven sitcom by having Elliot be aware of the fact that he's in this weird sort of dreamscape uh, that is adhering to these conventions but is also just really violent. Um, and Terrell's in the trunk of the car while everyone's on vacation. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is maybe the best Tyrell stuff that's been done in a while because him talking about his shoes was actually really funny. But (laughs) I don't understand why it was here. Narratively, I understand why it was there because, like, Mr. Robot, like, from the previous episode took over, buried Elliot, so Elliot wasn't going to have to take all the physical harm that uh, Ray was and Ray's goons were inflicting. Mm-hmm. And I get that. I understand that. I don't understand why it's a 90s sitcom. And I don't understand why we needed to do a 90s sitcom spoof in a way that basically made 90s sitcoms horrible. And I think my big resistance to it was the fact that there's this idea that Elliot's worldview is getting corrupted by all this stuff that's happening. So we kill Gideon again. So let's kill the gay guy twice. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it re-represents like his continuing baggage about Gideon's death. But we didn't need to do it again, I think. But then there's just all this other stuff of, yeah, but Mr. Robot as an entity represents this childhood corruption idea anyway. Every week. Because it's his dad. Mm-hmm. I don't need a childhood remembrance of a 90s sitcom on USA to tell me that Elliot's childhood has been ruined by something. And that... Because Mr. Robot, as a character, does that every week for me. Okay. And I don't need this idea that, well, it was a more innocent time because the flashback that they do at the end of the episode is basically the same thing as the opening of this childhood nostalgia of this car ride. And so it's this really purposeful bookend of something else being ruined. Innocence being lost because he lost his job. He's got cancer. He's going to open up the store. So there's this like innocence being lost on both sides, but we're supposed to see the lens of this very dramatic show doing it this way is better than doing it through through then doing it through some sort of like 90s sitcom type of thing and I just 
I felt really just really annoyed and frustrated by the entire thing. And then... Okay, so the other thing, which is just a really dumb thing to be hung up on, is that... And this has always been, like, one of my little piddly things about the show, but any show that's going to critique capitalism but is still produced and aired by a major media conglomerate can go f- screw itself. <laughs> like, you're, you're part of the system, man. You can't escape it. And now you're going you're gonna to use the trappings of 1990s nostalgia from your own channel to make fun of these things that without them, your channel that you're airing on wouldn't have existed. Just, well, is, is, was there a USA sitcom in the 90s? I don't feel like there was. Like, I wasn't no, but, a direct. No, but they aired syndicated, they aired a number of syndicated sitcoms. Okay. That, so, and that was the other thing narratively that I kind of balked at with this is that we've never been given the sense that Elliot watched any of these as a kid. Yeah. We're just going to assume that he has, but then... The link that we're supposed to make is that it's based on the television in the hospital, which is showing an ALF rerun, which ALF mm-hmm. aired on USA as a syndicated program. Okay. Uh, but it's just like, but that's the connection that I'm drawing is that the idea for this syndicated 90s sitcom comes from the hospital thing. Not necessarily Elliot's like childhood corrupt being corrupted or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it doesn't make any sense. It's, for me, it's just like Ishmael decided, I kind of want to make fun of 90s sitcoms, and I want to do all the aesthetics of it, and then USA is going to be like, you know what, that's a great idea. Let's do a Suits ads in a 90s sitcom aesthetic as well. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. Like, they aired a 90s-esque Suits ad during the airing of this episode, independent of the... independent of, like, the... Independent of Robot's riff, actually. It aired after Robot riffed on the 90s sitcoms. But yeah, so no, this kind of thing, like USA aired a bunch of like the NBC urban sitcoms that uh, weren't friends. So Single Guy, Caroline in the City, but they also did a number of like family driven sitcoms. So Major Dad, um, they did Family Ties for a little while. Um, like a bunch of these things would have aired on USA. Okay. But it just from it just felt weird and i didn't understand why we needed it narratively when we had a really well executed version of this at the end of the episode that was really good but significantly less smug in the critiquing um okay but to your point about the ladies it was really good even if i groaned really loudly at the fact that after just getting done with a extended 90s sitcom thing like a big set 18 minute set piece that they decided to fall back on doing a 70s heist stuff Mm -hmm. and i and i immediately went well can you guys do anything without falling back on something else this week can you Mm -hmm. can you and the answer was no apparently not and while it while it was good and i enjoyed like that aspect of the episode um I largely just went, well, you're just doing genre play, and if I wanted genre play, I would just look, grab my community episodes and watch that. <laughs> and that's Fair. where I ended up just really, really, really frustrated with all of this. 
And I, I've talked, I'm a monologue, <laughs> so please tell me why I'm overreacting. Well, I don't think you're overreacting. I think um, you it had a strong reaction, and I think you elucidated and defended it well. Um, for me, having Elliot get to a point where he's embracing Mr. Robot uh, is a significant turn. So yes. they wanted to do that, so they needed to earn that. And that's why they committed so fully to the like 20 minutes of time or whatever to this um, thing that they were doing. And... I mean, for me, like I said, it didn't, it, it wasn't a problem for me, but I see where you're coming from. And like, I think you make, I don't really have a defense against what you're saying other than. <laughs> right. Like, and, I, you, I, and you don't need one. The show needs one. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, like, I, like to me, it makes sense that in his, his brain now can't go to 90 sitcom place because. It's not like it used to, his brain used to be a happy, lovely, wonderful place. And then it uh, then these things happened in his uh, life that ruined that or spoiled that. It's just that like that this idea that that never existed and was false to begin with. And that his brain trying to defend itself is going to try to whip that up. But even when it's trying to create like a self-defense paradox or parallel universe world for for Elliot, it can't. This is the best it can do. Um, right. So, so for me, it really, that, that worked. Um, it goes on a long time. Yeah. And I'm okay with it going on a long time. That, that part didn't bother me. It's just the, yeah. Anyway, go on. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. But I, I, and I hadn't noted the nineties to the seventies thing, but that's an excellent point as well. Um, I liked moments such as, uh, uh, Angela realizing that Darlene's friend set her up in the first place. And I liked that they, at least it seemed like, established for Angela that Darlene didn't know about it based on her reaction, um, which was, which was, I th I liked that they did that so that hopefully we're not going to have like a whole, oh, you knew about it, you know, that kind right. of thing, tension between those two. But um, I, I liked that part of it. And um, yeah, I just, I, I just don't feel strongly enough about the show this season to be angry or very right. excited about this episode. Right. And I was like really lukewarm towards being like, this is becoming really masturbatory mm -hmm. um, in a lot of its execution of the Elliot stuff in particular. And this was just like the pinnacle of that for me. It was just like, why is this happening? Why are you doing this? What's justifying this within your story world? And while you were talking about like, that this was the best Elliot's brain could do, I immediately, when you said that, I immediately went, well, no, it's actually not the best his his brain could have done because why not go back to that dreamscape that he had where everyone's around the dinner table and, mm. like, cheering one another? Like, why can't, why wasn't the impulse to go to that world where he wanted to be? That's true. Because then I would have been like, this is a great way for you to bring back that concept. It's a great way to show how all of that is actually really corrupted. And I just, as soon as you said that, I just went, that would have been way better in execution, but it would have been stylistically less interesting. And now I'm just like, you just did this because you wanted to. Yeah, that's why they did it. Yeah. 
And I'm just, I'm kind of just pissed even more. Now. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not pissed even more now. It's just like, I've figured out a way for them to do the same thing in a way that would have been in keeping with the show's tone in a way that wasn't just because we felt like doing this. Mm-hmm. Or rather because I felt like doing this because Ishmael's writing Esmail, and directing, yeah. Ishmael is writing and directing everything this season and this is maybe why we don't let that happen. Yeah. There's no check. Yeah, it's always a, a bit of a It's a, a really tricky thing, right. Yeah. Because yeah. sometimes you get brilliant art and sometimes you don't. Um, so, you know, it's always a question. Well, I'm going to keep watching Mr. Robot. Uh, you, you're going to have to see how you feel. Right. I mean, maybe I'll have decompressed enough by next Wednesday or Thursday. <laughs> yeah. And I'll be like, okay. I can do another episode now as long as... But, Kate, if they do another extended thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just out. Fair enough. And I, like we've been talking about, I think it just demonstrated that Elliot is the least interesting thing. Yeah. On the show now. I mean, even Elliot is like a character's least interesting thing. Like, Craig Robinson? Holy hell. Mm-hmm. Really good in his, like, two scenes in this episode. Like, the whole thing about the dog and everything? Like, A, that's just really good Craig Robinson, like, kind of delivery type stuff that he would have been able to do in, like, a funny way. But then it just becomes this threat. Like, this big, fat threat. And it's just like, that was really good. And I immediately went, I wouldn't want anyone other than Craig Robinson to say that. And that's Mm -hmm. when you know you've done something really correctly. Yeah. Because it has a specificity. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for Mr. Robot here. What wins your week in TV? It's totally... No, it's not Mr. Robot. <laughs> no, when you said fingers crossed, you're just like, Kate, no, it's not Mr. Robot. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's... Um, uh, sorry, Steven Universe, but I had such a visceral and strong reaction to chocolate <laughs> that it had to be the Great British Baking Show this uh, for, the la- for this past week. Um, there wasn't really another choice for me. Uh so what about you? What won your week in TV? I'll, I'll give it to Steven, but yeah, because I was going to ask, I was like, it's, it, that's got to be a really close call for you. So I am, I'm uh, glad to, to hear just how much you were enjoying Baking Show this week. So uh, next week we'll have the very, the last episode of the Steven Universe, um, Steven Nuke, and uh, another episode as well. And then we'll have the Great British Baking Show finale going, like, duking it out for who's going to win. That'll be exciting. But for this week, we split the vote. Um, a few show notes here. You can find a post up for this episode at theteleverse.org, which is the website for the podcast. You can email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can like our Facebook page and start a conversation there. And you can find us with an M4A chaptered feed that lets you skip between different shows, different chunks of the, seg- of, of the podcast. Um, and with an MP3 unchaptered feed in iTunes. We appreciate uh, ratings and reviews there. It does help people find the show. And you can also find us in Stitcher uh and leave leave a rating review there as well uh and then of course we're both up on twitter i am at the televerse and noel you are at noel rk and now we will take a break and come back with allison shoemaker from the av club to talk carnival okay children let's shake some dust can't just leave it let's get him the hell out of here in desperate times, the good Lord looks over the flock and chooses one man to inspire the multitudes. 
one man to accomplish the impossible. And who are we to judge the wisdom of the Almighty? I'll read your cards. It's a magician reversed. You have a great talent of ability. It's been wasted, unfulfilled, a gift you've hidden from others. Ben, what are you hiding? We have a new church for the migrants. The flock I've been chosen to lead, chosen by the Lord God. He spoke to me, Iris, and I shall carry out his will. Praise the Lord. Drought and pestilence fester in the very heart of this great land. What are they, if not harbingers of the apocalypse? Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week on the DVD shelf, I'm excited because this is a show, we're talking about a show that I had like always meant to check out, but never had. And uh, it's that most entertaining of types of shows to talk about. It's one that I'm not quite sure what I think about. So we're going to break it apart and we're going to have a lot of fun. The show is Carnival and joining us from the AV Club, from Consequences Sound, and of course from Podler, Drunkcast, po- Podlander, Drunkcast, and uh, Outcast Pod cast outlander podcast i'm having cast in the house i'm having a day here uh it's it's allison shoemaker uh allison welcome to the podcast i apologize for butchering the name of your podcast oh no it's intentionally confusing it's really easy to say if you're drunk and really difficult to say if you're sober i was gonna ask if it gets easier or harder to say after the first like bottle of wine oh yeah it it just rolls trippingly off the tongue once you've started drinking but when you're sober we constantly call it the wrong name when we're sober and the right name when we're drinking. So well, there you go. I think that makes it an appropriate but complicated title. Good times. Well, speaking of appropriate but complicated, Carnival uh, is the show yeah. we're talking about this this week. Um, and, you know, with extra E and an accent uh, on the A for Carnival, because it looks cool, is the, is the reason that I found. <laughs> uh, that feels so appropriate. Uh Elson, we were we were hanging out. Uh, we were having some drinks, and just, you know, having you on. Well, we wanted to have you on, and what show should we talk about? And Carnival came up in the conversation. What made this one come to mind for you? How, why did you want to talk about Carnival? Well, I love talking about Carnival because it's it's like a list of ingredients that I should hate. So it's like willfully obtuse. It's like faux prestige a lot of the time. Um, it has a, an incredible cast that it uh, dramatically misuses at almost every opportunity. But at the same time, like when it was on, I couldn't stop watching it. Once it was canceled, I wondered at great length about what was actually going on and snapped up the information when it was released. And like, it's not by all reasonable metrics 
I should I should just not like this show. And yet somehow there are these moments and images and episodes that loom really large in my mind. So it's this, it's it's very strange. It's like all of the things that I love and hate about TV rolled into one very messy, short-lived package. Nice. Um, for those who don't know, because uh, there, are, I'm sure there are many like me who have heard of but maybe hadn't sought out or don't, you know, didn't don't really know exactly what Carnival is, other than you know. It, it has carnival stuff. Um, uh, Allison, what, what would you, let's give a, a brief synopsis of like what the show is. Good luck. Oh yeah. Well, that's, what's really complicated, right? So essentially it's a traveling carnival and a preacher in California. Only the, the two sort of dueling protagonists, it's hard to call them a protagonist and an antagonist because the show does a really nice job of Giving even though one of them is played by Clancy Brown, so you know he's the bad guy. The show still tries really hard to make it clear that both of these people possess both light and dark, but they're avatars for light and dark in a centuries-old battle of good versus evil um, that happens to take place in the Great Depression. Uh, and as a result, I'm always way more interested in the the things that are not a part of that epic battle. Um, because the show also wisely focuses on the lives when it deigns to spend the time of the people who are in this carnival, of the people who surround this preacher. Um, but really, it's like it's about a battle between good and evil set in the Great Depression. Um, and it could not be more lofty in that sense. And it, most of that is what I actually don't like about the show. But yeah, avatars for light and darkness. In the Great Depression. There's your summary. There you go. Yeah, and it's one of those shows that, I mean, it was it was created by Daniel Knopf, um, who's many of my might have just mispronounced, but um, the reason I know about it is because he brought in as a showrunner for season one is was Ronald D. Moore, who, of course, of Battlestar and Outlander and, uh, and you know, heavily involved in, um, in Star Trek, uh, you know, DS9, and... Um, or sorry, I should say Voyager, um, but the the so, so I knew about it because of the Ronald Moore connection, but the the stuff that this show gets right, I, I like I'm just very torn because as I started watching it, I was like, this is interminable, and it looks really pretty, and the all the time time period stuff is amazing, but it's just in love with its mythology and with the idea of being opaque. And it's not spending the time it needs to on the characters. And then as I watched, I watched the whole first season and then I kind of jumped around in the second season. Um, at a certain point, I was like, wait a second. I'm actually like, this is, I'm enjoying this a lot more. By the end of the first season, I was super invested in several of the characters. And I'm not convinced the show got better. I don't know if the show got better or I just learned how to Stop watch it. syndrome set in. Yeah. And because like, I, there's a few <laughs> things I could point to that changed and that improved. Um, in the show over the like in the later part of the first season versus the very beginning um but it, it really feels to me like a show where there's this guy this show yeah i shouldn't say guy this creator who has a vision of of a like a big you know large scale sense of the story but who is too in love with oh wait just wait this is gonna be like 
so huge in season three. And it's like, you have to make me care about season one. Because in the case of Carnival, mm-hmm. you don't get a season three. So I'm just, I'm very conflicted in how I feel about about, about Carnival. Um, but no, I know you're less conflicted than I am. How, how, how did this one go for you? Had you had you watched any Carnival before? Did you know about this before sitting down for this DVD shelf? Uh, well, I'd heard of it and I'd seen like the cover art for it. Um, but I'd never actually sat down to watch any of this. Uh, so this was like first time going through and thinking about this show in any way, shape, or form. I knew very little, next to nothing about it, aside from some of the actors who were in it. Uh, mainly just knowing that uh, Nick Stahl and Clancy Brown were in it, uh, because I know everything about Clancy Brown. Because who doesn't? Um, but uh, yeah, I I really struggled. I watched seven episodes from. Se- eight episodes from season one so i did the first seven and then the finale and then i did the premiere of season two the damascus trilogy i guess we can call it and then the final two episodes of season two um and i very much agree that this is kate your point that this was a show that was very much in love with its own mythology is really really accurate because i kept wanting to just hang out with the dreyfuses and just deal with their family drama much more than I cared about Hawkins having flashbacks to World War One and maybe fighting a bear. Well, and, and... you know what's ironic about that, Noel, is that right when you stopped watching season one is yeah. when you get all the Dreyfus stuff and with Jonesy, too. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> Naturally. Because for me, watching, like, when we get, they get to Babylon and one of the characters is murdered and that, that really shakes up the dynamics in the carnival um and then we spent a lot more time with the Dreyfus family watching the fallout from that and that really I feel like the show gets very invested in the interpersonal dynamics from that point uh on for the rest of the first season and that's so much more compelling to me would you I don't know would you would you agree Allison yeah absolutely um, my my favorite, I for whatever reason, I really love when a show has a great three run arc. And if memory serves, um, uh, Babylon and oh, what's the one after it called? Take a piece or a piece of something. It's the Retribution. That two episode arc uh, comes right through Black Blizzard, which is my favorite episode of Carnival. Um, and those three together, I think, do all the things that I want the series to do as a whole, where it sort of hints and dabbles in and out of this larger mythology, but really it's about people and great actors doing great work. Um, and I would watch that any day, but whenever we get to these massive battles and all of the really ooky spooky stuff that we have no emotional involvement in, that's when I get really lost. Um, but man, I think about Black Blizzard all the time. I think about that episode with great frequency. And it's strange for me to have a show that I have such conflicted feelings about that looms that large in my mind. Noel, do you, uh, have, did you have a stronger connection to Black Blizzard? For me, like, I, I enjoy Black Blizzard. The, um, the, they get to Babylon, the character is killed, and then we have the Retribution episode. That one for me was, I really struggled I really struggle with that episode because anytime you have a group of people who are going like, we have a code. We want revenge, but only by the code. I always have a hard time. I'm like, guys, we're a mob, but you know, we have rules. Like that's, they don't go together. <laughs> so I actually had a really uh, hard time with 
the fallout, <laughs> the initial, like the episode, and it was written by Ron Moore too. That episode was written by mm-hmm. Ron Moore. So I was like, I was, I had higher hopes for it and then it was kind of terrible, but Black Blizzard comes a couple before then. And uh, yeah. I, that's more of a, like, you feel like it's a bottle episode when you're watching it and then you're like, wait a second, but they built like two new sets for this bottle episode. So it kind of is it. Do you remember that one, uh, Noel? Did that work for you a little better or not so much? It, it was better than, I think, some of the other stuff that I had watched up to that point. But I like you, Kate, because I saw you um, tweet about uh, your issues with Pick a Number. And that's when I consulted my friend, who's a big Carnival fan as well. And I was just like, I need a list of episodes to watch because I'm not going to get through this. Um, because Babylon Pick a Number for me just kind of crystallized some of the other things I was kind of struggling with in both with the show up to that point was that a i just really like my magical realism on a page and not on a screen i think i've decided (laughs) and so a lot of the stuff that's happening in babylon is very magical realism and it was just frustrating me to no end um the representations of it and the logistics of how i was supposed to believe how it worked basically i was really kind of struggling with and then the other thing that hit me was Babel is it yeah it's pick a number has the extend not the extended but very clear very purposeful twin peaks homage within it and it's not a hollow illusion or anything but i just went uh you guys this is kind of a weird intertextual thing that you guys are doing because of who you've cast to play samson but we're going to reference also twin peaks at the same time directly and i just went there's too many things here that are mucking up what I think you're trying to tell me and I'm just going to have to tap out and like figure out how to navigate this in a an abridged way. Yeah, I think the part of the show that I least connected to is all this stuff with the avatars and the mythology behind it. And that's I think the the I think the issue that I have with the show and I there's plenty of stuff that I do like that I'll get to shortly right <laughs> never for the carnival fans listening who are just like we were lied to expecting Illustines. that it would be a rave yeah um I there is stuff that I really like but um the, the I think it's just again this idea of the creator laying all of this out and then trying to give pieces and clues of the mythology but doing it in such a way that it's opaque to the point of uh just I don't care and so when they're showing like a flash in a trench and there's a bear it's like why does there need to be a bear cuz you know like there's all of this stuff that from the perspective of somebody who's looking at it who's like figured out like a chart and a diagram and knows all of this stuff it can it seems interesting and intriguing and cool because they know what all of the stuff what stuff means something and what stuff doesn't so they can just key into the stuff that they know is meaningful and not notice all the stuff that is given great portent that isn't going to go anywhere. But for us, for me watching, um, I just, I doubt despite the ridiculous number of hours of television that I've watched in my life and obscure and obtuse and like really very specific genre television I've watched. I would, I can't imagine being able to keep track of all this without having Wikipedia. Like that would have not been fun for me. Um, and I love this stuff, so <laughs> this type of thing. So I really didn't key into that, but as soon as things got more personal, as soon as, as I got a much stronger sense of who Ben Hawkins is, um, I could really 
key into that character a lot more. So like with Samson at first, I was a little iffy on the character and the performance, but then as the series continued, I liked him more and more and more. So when we have conflict with him and lots, um, and, and I feel like, uh, or loads, uh, I feel, I feel like, um, I got a stronger sense of who he was and then I felt like I was watching a character and so I could invest and I really had a lot of fun. The same thing with, with brother Justin, where it's just, I initially, I didn't really feel like I knew who that character was at all. I mean, but Clancy Brown's really good. So I was investing in Clancy Brown. And then as the show went on, I got a stronger sense of, of the character. And so I could invest more. Um, but yeah, the, yeah, I, I just, I really, for me, it's just, it's a shame. I don't know if you could if there's something else they could have done, or if it, it's something that could have been fixed. Um, it's not like there's one, you could pull one thread and then tie it off and then it, everything would be a okay. Um, at least to me, I don't know. What do you guys think about this stuff? Um, for me, I always think of it as being sort of a forerunner to lost, although, yeah. uh, it's pretentious in a way that lost is not, um, where, we think, oh, we'll set up these mysteries and then we'll pay them off. And yet somehow, despite Lost being a hot mess, the immediacy of them, because it's like, what's going to be interesting in this episode? Let's create a mystery that's going to be interesting in this episode. And that's what we'll do. Um, works for me way better than uh, let's create a mystery that we already know the answer to that's going to be solved in six seasons. But we'll just lay the groundwork <laughs> now. You know, like that, when you read about... Daniel Knopf's plans for the series as a whole, his six seasons in a movie or whatever it is that he wants. Uh, it's both staggering in the scope and in his ambition. And then also like, man, I just don't think that the best TV works that way. I think the best TV is somewhere in between where it's not all id and it's not all ego. It's like you find a way to balance what's going to be entertaining right now with making sure that you know what the hell you're doing. Um, and, and that's the biggest problem I have. So I'm totally with you. Anything that feels like one tiny puzzle piece in an epic story is the stuff that lost me. But I will watch Sophie do anything. You know, as soon as Sophie gets interesting, like, Clay Duvall, I'm right there. Um, I want to know all about Jonesy, and I want to know all about, like, all of these minor characters. Or Samson. That, part of the reason I love Black Blizzard is watching... Because they're all trapped, so yeah, it feels like a bottle episode. But but watching the interactions that these people have that are just human. It's just about their flaws and their insecurities and the pain that they experience and the ways in which they're trapped outside of this dust storm. Like, that's great. I don't care so much about what's going on with Lotz and Ben, you know? Like, it's complicated. Yeah. The, the stuff with, I mean, like, I, I I very much enjoy Clay Duvall. She's not on my TV enough, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, I've watched too many not good shows because she was in them. Like uh, like all, Al, she was in Alcatraz, right? Mm-hmm. Or my mis- yeah. I remember why I, sh- I was very excited when she showed up on Heroes. Uh, yeah. You know, for like a minute and stuff like that. But so I really I was gonna like Sophie anyways because I enjoy Claire Duvall. But um, she. I, I was very connected with that character. I thought the way that they handled the her her she can hear her mom thing worked way better than it should have. And when they started, like it took them way, 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 way too long to to put the Sophie and Libby connection to make that text. 
Uh, I'm like, I was watching this going like, okay, obviously there's serious Sophie Libby shipping that should be happening right now. Does the show realize that they have fallen in love? Cause, and then by the end of the first season, you see them deal with that. But, um, yeah, I was very invested in, in Sophia and I was also very invested in, in Jonesy. Uh, Noel, were there characters that worked better for you or that you were more invested in? Yeah. Um, well, I really, it's not so much characters as I just got involved in people's performances, which I think is different because I ended up not really caring about any of the characters per se, but I was more fascinated by what the performers were trying to do within this kind of a weird mess. So like Tim Decay is doing just really, really interesting, good work, I think, as Jonesy, even if sometimes I'm not entirely sure what to make of his interest in Sophie sometimes. It's just kind of weird to me. Um, and I think that was more of a writing issue that I could never really parse out. But I really enjoyed how both him and Duval like managed to find something to do within that. So I think that was one of those instances where the actors were doing a much better job at making things work um, than I think the writing was necessarily doing. And the same thing applies to like the Dreyfus family. I mean, Toby Huss is just insanely good as Stumpy, but I mean, Cynthia Edinger and Carla Gallo, who most people would probably recognize, I went, oh, that's the intern from Bones, <laughs> um, <laughs> who played Libby, um, were all three just really, really great, and Clancy Brown obviously can come off as benignly malignant um, better than pretty much anyone alive. Um, and so I was invested in performances. I wasn't necessarily invested in characters. And that's basically what kind of kept me from completely disengaging with the show was wanting to see how these actors responded to these moments that the show was crafting and these little bits of puzzles that the writers were delivering and see how they balance that kind of thing. And I think wanted to your point, Allison, about the show's like structure and the six year plan and everything. One of the things I've thought as soon as I finished season one, which is a which is a good season finale, I think, is that this is the this is what a Netflix show is now, because the first season basically just feels like a twelve hour pilot, a proof of concept of this is what the show is, but to make sure that you understand, we're gonna do thirteen hours of explaining what this show is, and then things kick into gear into season two and so forth. And it feels like if Carnival were made today and on Netflix, it would have already been picked up for like two more seasons. I was surprised by what I had patience for and what I didn't. Because I know for some people, they were, um, they wanted Justin, the brother Justin stuff to connect with the Carnival stuff. And for me, I did not care that they were in completely different parts of the country. No connection, no intersection, like... I, I did not need that to happen any sooner. By the end of the second season, what ends up being the series finale, we get our, our significant confrontation between those two characters. But I was in no hurry for them to intersect. Um, so, and I'm sure, I, I completely understand what other people would be or were when they watched. Um, but it, oddly enough, that, that didn't bother me at all. Um, and yet, uh, the, like the stuff that, like I, I really... I was interested enough in like the Knights Templar stuff when they started having more personal connections. So like when 
Ben starts figuring out that Scudder is his father and we get the more personal connection with Sophie as well. Um, with, with, uh, the, the tree man who we later discovered is brother Justin and all of that. Like that gave me an end to the avatar stuff that initially like the flashbacks and the memories and all of that, I had no patience for. I was like, keep telling me brother Justin stories. Keep telling me carnival stories. Don't have them intersect at all. I don't care. Uh, just stop with the dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I felt similarly. I think that, I mean, visually, they're exemplary. They're beautiful. It's beautifully shot. The production design is beautiful. But, like, really, I just wanted actual storytelling. And I think when Carnival focused on actual storytelling, it did great stuff. And when it was focused on these larger six-year tiny bits and pieces of mysteries is when it really lost me. Yeah, the, we we haven't talked about the production design like at all yet, but I feel like we really should because it is yeah. it's gorgeous. There are not a lot of shows set in this time period, certainly amongst like the Dust Bowl poor, you know. Um, and it's it's the the apparently it's very accurate, very like the verisimilitude of like the cars and the dress and like all that stuff is is really well done. So the internet tells me, um, but. <laughs> Like, the budget on this show was insane, which is, you know, just ridiculous for its well, time. Well, insane then, yeah, insane then. Now, get, HBO's spending, like, $10 million on an episode of Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's Game of yeah. Thrones, though. They're not spending it on... They make money. Yeah. Carnival didn't make money. Carnival didn't make money. But um, but it looks, it looks absolutely... It's hard to say it looks gorgeous because it's so great, but it should be because it's during the Dust Bowl, you know? Uh, I feel like it'd be mm-hmm. e- easy to overlook just how well put together this world is you believe it entirely and they had to build this from whole cloth yeah and it's even though there's this sort of like gray dusty tone to everything somehow it's still like sumptuous like even including when people are like um anytime that someone is caught in some sort of dust storm or in the pilot when Ben's mother is dying and there's just this fine layer of dust over everything. Despite that, that it managed to, manages to look so rich in texture that it just feels like you're watching, a, like, uh, I don't know, like an Edwardian drama because everything looks amazing even though it's designed to look terrible because, of course, it should look terrible. Um, but even the effects are great. Like, going to the pilot again, Uh, the scene when the woman who visits Brother Justin's congregation um, vomits coins. It's a really simple effect, but God, it's just awful. Yeah. You know, it's like really (laughs) horrifying. Um, And it, I don't know. I just think it rightfully won uh, five Emmys in, I think that was the first season in one of its two seasons. And they were all design Emmys um, or cinematography. One of them was cinematography, but um, you look at it and the, the opening titles are really beautiful and they cast a bunch of very interesting looking actors. Not all of them are conventionally attractive, but like are all just magnetic to watch and then put them in these incredibly detailed costumes on these incredibly detailed sets. And so it's just like a visual feast, even when it's full of bullshit, you sort of like <laughs> don't want to turn away because it's because it's so beautiful and so well designed and put together. The location scouting also is just, they find really terrific places for them to set up the carnival. And I mean, just even the 
the hilltop house with new cannon and everything is just so pretty and just perfect, I think, in terms of just its setting and it feels both... And this is like the aspect of the show's magical realism that I think really works is that it feels very specific but doesn't feel like a place, like a place that should exist. And I think that the, the location scouting with the combination of the set design that you mentioned, Allison, and also the costuming and everything just lends it this intense verisimilitude that just helps things along really, really nicely. It's a really interesting, I think, time period and one that's underexplored on television. So, you, I mean, I feel like, I always feel like there's there's these two shows really battling to happen in uh, the middle of Carnival. And it's the, just like the day-to-day life of being in a traveling carnival during the Great Depression. I, I like the, the conflict of they go to these towns and they have to basically bribe <laughs> the, the sheriffs and, and, you know, the local authorities to be able to be allowed to, to set up the carnival. And this idea of they do bring you know like wonder and joy and something new into the lives the very gray lives of the people in these small towns that they that they travel through uh but the people in these small towns do not have you know five cents to spare so and and they're always trying to bilk them out of as much money as possible like this the morality of that i found really intriguing and so there's like a really interesting show just about the day-to-day life within this carnival. And it's something like the, the dynamics within the, the Dreyfus family, which, you know, that's an interesting line of work to be in. I'm, it's like, here's a mother and father and their two daughters and the father emcees the strip show that all of them participate in, you know, like that's an interesting dynamic, uh, to, to explore. Um, and then at the same time, there's this very, uh, mythological apocalyptic show trying to happen at the same time or even with brother Justin again the day-to-day of trying to be a missionary to the Okies and and uh, and what is that like and and all this when you have a lot of people who are who don't have anything who have to fight for every penny uh, who are theoretically all you know they're just people they're all good they're all bad um, that gives you a lot of tension as a starting point. And I feel like, you know, if you start, if you're starting in desperate times, there's a lot of potential for interpersonal drama and stakes. Um, and the great depression is, you know, that's a time with a lot of people in desperate straits. So there's a lot of narrative potential there. So it's, uh, it's too bad that this isn't a more examined time period in American history. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's extremely well-traveled on the page and less so, unless we're talking about adaptations, on um on screen on in film or on television you know we have moments but it's usually dressed up you know it's a boxing movie or it's a music movie and so we just get hints or we'll get like one incredibly awful episode of doctor who um (laughs) and like and that's it no no i guess that no don't talk about that yeah it's two no we're not talking (laughs) okay yeah it's not great it's not great um (laughs) But, uh, but whenever I happen to see it, for whatever reason, it's just such an evocative time in history. And I think better than pretty much anybody other than Steinbeck, I guess, this does a really great job of making sure that the era in which it exists both feeds and is fed by the story that they're telling. Like, it couldn't take place in any other era, and that 
feels really fitting to me, like in like a time in American history that's so literally dry and uh, broken and sad and heavy is the kind of place where somehow um, the world would then be given these epic figures battling in the decay of our country, I guess. I don't know. One of the only things about it I find palatable is like, God, can you imagine if if Carnival was set in the 70s? No, thank you. (laughs) It just wouldn't feel like, it wouldn't feel right at all. But somehow it it manages to work because of when and where they set it. Yeah. Well, because like I've said, I, I have a conflicted relationship with this show, but I still would like to go back and, and catch up with the episodes that I skipped over uh, to, you know, when I ran out of time, I couldn't watch them all. Cause I just, I am intrigued and I am, I would like to spend more time with some of these characters that I really uh, connected with and the performances that I was connecting with. So it's, I can't think of another show where I wasn't, where, where that I felt this conflicted or ambivalent about like ambivalent is not very conflicted about where I was like okay I'm gonna go watch more of this very slow moving very (laughs) obtuse show just cause cause I just (laughs) there's something I can't quite name that is drawing me back to it so uh thank you very much Allison for 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 getting me to finally you know investigate carnival because uh, i it would have been another one of those that ones that i just kind of hoped it didn't come up in conversation because i feel like i should know it you know <laughs> so i'm glad to have, have take that one off the the box the the list of shows to catch up with well thanks for having me i'm always i always love talking about the show both because of the strangeness of the show itself and like what else it has to say about television since 2003 you know like it's yeah. the world has changed so much since the show um that i think interesting anyway and thanks and it's cool to be on a podcast that i like so much it's like living <laughs> a little dream oh thank you very much well Allison, where can our listeners find you and your work online uh i'm on twitter at allison shoe um and also the majority of my work runs at consequenceofsound.com um that's all film but occasionally they let me rant about television or musicals or whatever else is the topic of the day um but yeah, Twitter. And then uh, PodlanderCast is the handle for Podlander Drunkcast and Outlander Podcast. Well, and we should mention that if people are in the Chicagoland area, if they're going to Wizard World, you're going to have a live podcast oh, there. Yeah. yeah, we're doing, we're on Thursday, Thursday at 530 uh, on the 18th. We're doing a live taping of the show, um, which should be really fun. Uh, and then like Kate, I'm an AV club, TV club person. Good times. Well, again, thank you once more, Allison, for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. (laughs) 